Hey everyone, it's Ronnie here. Before we get started, I wanted to thank you all for listening to the very first season of the Woman-Owned, Woman-Operated podcast. We learned so much from this first season, and we appreciate all of the support and helpful feedback from our listeners. I am so grateful to the incredible women in Boston who took time out of their busy days to share their journeys and struggles with us, and excited to announce next season we are traveling to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to share stories of female founders changing that community and inspiring others to do the same. Thanks again for listening. Here is the final episode of season one. Welcome to the Women-Owned, Women-Operated podcast, where we speak with female founders in the trenches of building a business. I'm Ronnie Wise, founder and CEO of Ronnie Wise Consulting. Through this podcast, I hope to share stories, struggles, and successes to inspire you to pursue your passions and support women-owned businesses. On this episode, I visit Third Piece Studios to meet founder Kristen Lambert, After launching her handmade knitwear collection in 2012, Third Piece designs have become iconic in Boston and beyond. We discuss the highs and lows of growing a business, why she left a promising career in finance, and the burnout that can happen when the product you sell is seasonal. It feels like a perfect day in Boston's South End to visit the Third Piece studio. It's winter here, so being surrounded by sweaters, scarves, and headpieces in vibrant colors seems like the best place to be right now. I'm so excited to be sitting with Third Piece founder and owner, Kristen Lambert. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So I just would love for you to tell us about the moment or moments leading up to you creating Third Piece and becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's been a journey. I started the company back in 2012 along with a co-founder I had originally started with a former business partner and always wanted to start something. I had been working in finance for almost a decade. You know, I went to business school, finished my MBA, always kind of thought that business was my calling. There was something about it that I just wanted to do something on my own and uh, create something. What was it like to transition from having a business partner to doing it on your own? Yeah, yeah, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, I think in the beginning, you go into business with someone and I think it's one of those things actually, I feel like when I was going through it, nobody really talks about it or maybe it's something that people don't quite know how to talk about and for my situation you know it was a very extremely challenging time it was a time where the business was just in flux and like you don't know what to do because you start something with someone and you have this vision of what it's gonna look like and I think both of us did and then when that falls through or doesn't end up working out it really flips you upside down Mm. in a really kind of unsettling way yeah but you can never really know and and, and you just don't know I think you go into it thinking that it's fun. It has to be fun in the beginning. And then somewhere, unfortunately, along the lines, things happen and running a business is so hard and so, so stressful. And you kind of start to find out what you want and and it's hard to be on the same page with somebody else. It's like a marriage. It really is. And then when you go through a separation, it can often be like a divorce. Yeah, not every marriage works. No. (laughs) So were there personal challenges that you didn't expect you would have to face in the process of starting and growing your business? I mean, you always expect challenges. I think in the beginning, it's fun, growth, exploratory. You have a lot of wins. And then when you start feeling the real pressure of owning a business and the financial stress and the ownership that comes with it, it's just like a whole new ball game. Like around year three was when the fun kind of stopped and it became real and the pressure became real and the finances became real. And yeah, you start really thinking about the details yeah. that, you, that you need to make work. Yeah. 
How much has your finance background played a role? I, I would imagine you came in with an advantage a little bit. It was definitely helpful. I mean, I think that that side of me of like loving education and the structure of coming from a corporate setting kind of instilled some really good positive things to help me build it and get it off the ground. But on the flip side, I would say looking back, I think I spent too much time in the early years being too business oriented, being too much in my Excel sheets, being too wrapped up in this plan that had to look a certain way that I had to present a certain way. And but at the end of the day, you just have to figure out what you want your business to be and you just have to do it and get away from your computer and get away from like reading and listening to others and start figuring out what it is that you want. And that took me a long time to figure out. <laughs> are you, you know, sitting and actually making or are you still predominantly doing the business side of things? So I'm still predominantly on the business side. Um, for me, the company started more as a fashion label, mm. a product driven where we were creating and designing knitwear products that were just really fun, stylish, fun to wear growing up and living in Boston and that they were made by local women. It was just this product that I became very wrapped up in. I've always been more on the product operational and business side of it. So when I knit, it's more I'm knitting to really understand like how complicated is this pattern? Like how much work goes into it? How much labor, how much time do these pieces take to be made? Because they are made by hand. So for me, it's not like a hobby or therapy because I don't have the patience for it. I'm a little too type A, but I just appreciate it and respect what goes into it so, so much. And it helps me understand the knitters and what they have to do to get their job done at the end of the day. So what aspects of yourself and your personality do you see playing an important role in the culture here at Third Piece? Um, I think everything, you know, and I think kind of coming into my own and opening the store on my own, it was kind of that moment where I realized how important the tone that I set and the culture that exists throughout the company and the people that come in here every day from the people that work here to the customers. It's crucial. Um, and you read about that, and that's where, like, my business side, I read about, like, the importance of a team, the importance of culture, and all those management books that I love to kind of wrap myself up in. But then you have to step away and you can say, okay, like, what does that mean? How is that? practical, like the tone that gets set and the way I manage the team and the way I hope to empower them to do the job that gets them up every day, gets them excited, wanting to come here and be a part of it. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It's who you work with and what you do. And, and you spend so many hours working. Like if you don't enjoy it, then it sucks. It really sucks. You know, I've had jobs where I was making really good money, but either the team I was on I just didn't jive with or the work I was doing just seemed like bullshit. And it's just, you know, at the end of the day, I realized it wasn't about a dollar for me. It was about a lifestyle. So in preparing for meeting you today, I was curious how many results would show up on Etsy if I searched for knit scarf. Uh, and it was over 100,000 results, oh which <laughs> probably doesn't oh shock you God. at all. Yeah. Um, so how do you differentiate third piece products in a DIY do-it-yourself market? Yeah, it, it's definitely a very fragmented market. There's lots of competition or whether you look at like the indie makers on Etsy and now with the ability of people to build their own websites so easily and these local driven markets, you do see it a lot. From our perspective, we really just try to stay true to designing knitwear 
pieces and, and really kind of putting a fresh spin on knitting. You know, it's also a fashion product where it's very easy to get knocked off. You know, I've started to see pieces like ours, like our hooded piece getting replicated for $90, getting sold in a cute little boutique in Vermont, and it's made by knitters in Peru. So, you know, I think competition's very real in any business, so you have to learn how to either face it or embrace it and, and what you want your business model to be. And, you know, you kind of talking about what you just said, I, I love that your business, you go online and, you know, you have kind of one product but two prices and mm -hmm. one is, you know, made by us and one is made by you. Um, and that made by you is as a kit with the materials and patterns for your customers to make the design themselves. So, I mean, obviously it was for a competitive reason, mm -hmm. but what else like inspired that? Knitting's definitely been an increasingly popular craft and trend. Um, I think in the past it was something that was stereotyped to be grandma or something a little bit more older and I think there's been a lot of brands and awareness around younger or just more modern, not necessarily younger in age, but just a younger mentality about how can we take this traditional craft that has so much nostalgia around it and make it feel relatable to right now, make it wearable, make it fun, and, and make it easy because the traditional ways of making really tiny sweaters and like tiny needles and, and scarves that ends up taking like six months, that just doesn't seem enjoyable for the way people live right now. I think yeah. people want like now, they wanna be done with a hat like tomorrow, today. <laughs> yeah. um, they wanna be able to like share it and wear it and, and really be part of the process. Totally, and it's funny, I was actually gonna ask you about experiential gifts are sort of in. Yeah. Um, and. You I'm seeing more and more workshops and classes and things that you know people are doing and that's mm -hmm. one of the things you do here in your studio. Yeah. Um, the whole point of going brick and mortar and opening up retail, it was always part of the plan even when I went back and wrote that crazy business plan like year one and year two, like retail was always built into the concept. Um, but to have such a big space, because this was a huge investment, a huge risk that I took to open the space, I really wanted to have the classroom feel like intentional and dedicated and refreshing. When people walk in, I want them to feel invited and welcome. Regardless if you know how to knit, you don't know how to knit. I, I just wanted it to feel like a really warm communal space that people would be excited to come to. And before you even had this permanent location, I saw that you popped up in a few neighborhoods, yeah. opened sort of temporary retail spaces. And I see more and more companies doing this, and I always assumed it was kind of to scope out neighborhoods, test the market mm -hmm. out. Pop-ups are such a great way there's little to no kind of commitment. Um, there's often little to no risk. You can usually negotiate with whoever you're working with, whether it's another company or property management company. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of work done in a short amount of time, so it's very intense, but at the same time, the lessons that you learn from it and the takeaways, it's it's, it's just invaluable, it's great. And it could also be uh, one of those things where you do it and you're like, yep, this is not for me. Because like, <laughs> it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, and you have to really learn to, enjoy it and want to embrace retail or else you should just never do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've attended markets as well and, mm -hmm. and holiday events since 2012. Even recently, you know, you were at the big holiday market here in Boston. So much has changed since then. There are more markets, there are more makers, and now you have a brick and mortar location on a busy street in yeah. the south end of Boston. So how important is it for you to continue attending markets and events, or has your event strategy changed since, you know, looking back The event strategy definitely changed. I think opening the store, like I had said, it was such an investment. And I was originally signed up to do a lot of marketplaces. I used to go do like yarn trade shows out, and I did one in Seattle, one in Minneapolis. Um, I was supposed to do one in San Francisco. And shortly after I signed the lease for the space, and soon after the store opened, I had a baby. So mm -hmm. on a personal level, I just didn't have it in me. And when you do those, 
shows, it's a lot of investment and you really have to do it. And as, as the owner, I, I feel like I have to be there and remove myself from the store. So after thinking about it and thinking about the resources already being stretched so thin, I actually decided to turn down some of those opportunities. And I, looking back, think it was the best decision I ever could have made because when the business starts to run you, which for so many years it did, it's just not sustainable. It starts to become something that burnout's very real. Um, in many years, I would just burn myself out from September through February, and then in February, I would just crash. I kind of just made a promise to myself that I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I just wasn't going to do it, and I just wanted to like make this business work for me, make yeah. it work for my family, and um, find a way to, to make it sustainable at the same time. Speaking of February and having that downtime, you know, I know for us living in New England, the winter is so cold, but the summers can get so hot. <laughs> so how do you combat the seasonality of the business? Summer months are always tough. Um, this is a highly seasonal business. Retail in general is very seasonal, but you put the fact that we have a seasonal product that's limited to cold weather locations on top of it, and this mm. is probably one of the most high-risk businesses, and oftentimes when I would present it to people, that would be one of their number one feedback to me, that my business is definitely a riskier one from that perspective. So it's really been a key priority for me, especially in opening up the store, is figuring out how can I reduce the seasonality? Is it through the classes? Is it through shifting gears? We still do wholesale. I sell the yarn through wholesale. So there's different revenue streams that come in to keep the business afloat, but I'm not going to lie, the summer months, especially this past one and having the store and the overhead that comes with the store was quite a business wake-up call as mm -hmm. to um, how to think about it going forward. But um, I made it. I made it through my first year. <laughs> Congratulations. By the, by the skin of my teeth <laughs> at times. But um, I think going into 2019, I think I, I feel really good. And I still think I'm pushing the rock up the hill, but at least now I think I can see the picture at the, mm -hmm. the top of that hill. And that's taken me a long time to get there. And then I have to ask, what was it like to have Giselle wear your product? You know, I saw on Instagram you posted a photo where someone caught a photo of her and Tom Brady. You know, and did you see a spike in sales of that totally. particular design? Yeah. So it happened very casually on Instagram. She was like, it's like one of those like fan page sites, <laughs> showed a picture of her at her son's hockey game wearing it, and someone had tagged us, and it was like, oh my God, like we had gifted it to her oh um, and didn't hear anything of it. And then you kind of just like wait and see. I think that's one of the struggles in being like a fashion driven product is that there is this like marketing angle and like celebrity seating angle that is a bit of a crapshoot. You kind of don't know. And as a <laughs> just small business, yeah. just and as a business, when you have, you know, all your money intertwined, like each hat, you're like, oh my God, like that's like the cable bill or like that's and like, and to just give it away blindly and not know if you're going to get anything in return is like so scary. Yeah. So when she was wearing it the first time, we were like, oh my God, she likes it. It's like, she likes, <laughs> she it, likes it, you know, because like you don't tell a supermodel what to wear. And the fact that she probably gets gifted thousands of things and she actually wears it was, was just like so rewarding. And then a year following that, it was when the week before the Super Bowl that she was seen wearing it when she was down at the Frog Pond. Mm -hmm. And that was the time we were like, oh my God, she's still wearing it. She still, she really still likes, likes it. Yeah. Um, and it was really one of those moments where it was like, now what do we do? And we, um, we had a social media coordinator that had helped us reach out and try to say like, that's this company's hat, you know, because she just wore it and the picture was just taken and there wasn't any credit given to us. So we had to turn around and reach out to different publications and say like, hey, can you tag us? Hey, like that's our hat and, and kind of see if we could get any traction with that. Yeah. Uh, but from a marketing perspective and as a marketing company, I'm sure you know that like the power of celebrity placements, pretty real. It was yeah. definitely one of those moments when I was like, wow, I never <laughs> really understood the influence that a celebrity can have from yeah. 
just like a simple picture. It's really powerful. It's amazing. And, and it's like, you know, you, you could send a million out and one might hit, yeah. but when that one hits, yeah. you know, it's 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 worth it. Yeah. And then you have to be ready. <laughs> that's the thing. You don't know when that's you have to be ready. That's the thing. Yeah. like, that hat in that color, that's what everybody wanted. And if you don't have it and we're a handmade product, then your opportunity kind of was just lost. Um, but it was one of those times where it was just enough. Like, we got good Boston press around it. Um, and we had the coverage from the Globe and Boston Magazine and a lot of our traction came from the Boston area and we, we started to get some hits from across New England but everyone was kind of like, I want the color that Giselle has. <laughs> it, can Tom come with it? You know, like you just get these emails from customers that are pretty hilarious. It was just one of those moments where it was like, this is a good moment and we just have to roll with this and just get as many of these goddamn Newberries made as possible. <laughs> How do you escape the constant demands of your business? Have you found balance in your life? I wouldn't say I necessarily have found balance, but I think I've been on a search to find like a contentment. Learning to better battle the really high or extreme times and learning to better embrace and celebrate the good times. So for me, I just try to judge that on a daily basis. Ways that I, I try to take some time for myself. It's definitely been yoga. I've probably been practicing yoga for almost 10 years. For me, I think working out, it's a good way to kind of get out of my own head because that's pretty much where I live most of the time um, and I have to do it in the morning like if I say like oh I'm gonna go to that noon class yeah it doesn't just happen. doesn't, doesn't <laughs> that happen. phone call happens or an email happens yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny I've actually been trying to do more yoga just because I feel like if I'm gonna spend time doing something in my free time which is very limited mm. it needs to be something that's calming yeah <laughs> you know quiet and I have to turn my phone off exactly <laughs> that's the thing I, I do force myself to like let my phone die and try not to have my phone on me a lot for me it's like one text becomes one email and then I'm 20 minutes deep in like some BS online that I should not be wasting my time on. And so for me, it's more of an energy drainer. So I try to put some boundaries on that and um, having a child uh, that's now nine months old, he's super active. Aww. So at least when I'm with him, it really forces me to be present. So, you know, you came from a world in finance, uh, very male dominated. Um, mm -hmm. In this process of starting and growing third piece, have you faced moments when you or others have doubted your ability to succeed? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think working in finance, I mean, you, you definitely hit it spot on. It is like a boys club. And I was always on the fence because finance in that industry, I did really well. You know, I was promoted to a vice president at like the age of 26. For the last few years, I worked in wealth management underneath a really amazing director. You know, I, I applied for this position that I definitely wasn't qualified for. But he was like, I like you. <laughs> You're way too green, but I like you. And he made this promise to help me get to wherever I wanted. And he was like, just give me three good years and we'll figure out what's next for you mm. and, and that's when I decided to go a different path and started the business instead of moving forward in the industry. Once you started the business did you face any challenges? Yeah absolutely I think in the beginning I thought that I had to like put together this plan and go pitch it and I was gonna raise money which I think a lot of entrepreneurs think is what either has to happen or what you should be doing and I found especially here in Boston when I would go to like startup networking events or I did my MBA at Northeastern I would do different alumni events I was often faced with 
investors that were predominantly older white men that were investing in either high-tech software, healthcare, um, definitely not consumer goods, definitely not lifestyle or product related. And oftentimes they just didn't understand it. And I think they just thought like, okay, cute little girl, like that'll be fun. Like, or they, you know, like I just, they did, I don't think that I was always seen as a, a viable business. And I think I finally realized that I didn't want to create a VC driven business. I didn't want to create a business where I was giving up ownership and then at the hands of somebody else that was going to tell me to go make my products in Peru or get them made cheaper or stop making them and or focus on the yarn or if I was going to give up my successful career in finance that I wanted to call the shots and that was and still is very important to me. And so you've turned you know, an idea into a beautiful studio, recognizable and notable designs and thousands of online followers. At this moment, would you call yourself successful? <laughs> That's such a funny thing. Um, I I don't think I've um, uh, finished my job. If that you know, I think I have very high goals of what I'm looking to achieve. I think I'm definitely in this for a very long term. Like this, this is my life, you know. And I want to ride it out and build it into a company that really establishes a, like a legacy. And it's not just like a three or five year plan for me. This isn't like I'm gonna grow it to be a five million dollar company and then turn around and sell it. Like I really want to create a long-term sustainable company that creates beautiful products and creates opportunities for people that doesn't exist here in Boston or, or wherever that may be. So for, from a success standpoint, I think I, I'm proud of myself, which is difficult for me to say. I think that I can look back and um, fought to get where I am and I'm finally at a place where I'm feeling a lot happier and a lot more optimistic. As far as success goes, I'm getting there, but I'm excited of what the next few years in the future brings to really reach what I wanted to. Kristen, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I personally am so inspired by you. I, I've been following you for a long time, and I'm inspired by this business and everything that you created from a market that you might have just been selling a product at to this amazing store and shop and learning space for the community. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. This is fun. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Well, now I have to go shopping <laughs> <laughs> and decide what, what next we're going to buy. Thank you for listening to the woman-owned, woman-operated podcast. Learn more about Kristen and her business at thirdpiece.com. A special thank you to Kristen Lambert for sharing her story with us, John Lundman for our beautiful music, my incredible mother who started her own business and inspired me to start mine, and everyone who joins us in supporting women-owned businesses in their communities. Subscribe to our podcast to hear more stories like this one. And remember, when women support women, incredible things happen.